Support for this podcast comes from Microsoft Surface. Now more than ever, you need a laptop that can be as adaptable as you are. Introducing Microsoft Surface Laptop Go. Finally, a premium laptop at an affordable price. Starting at just $549, its light, thin design, vibrant touchscreen, powerful processor, and built-in HD camera and mic turns any room in your home into a classroom, office, or study hall. Available in three amazing colors the whole family will love. Visit surface.com slash laptop go for more details. We're really trying to promote outrage because this not should not be the way it is in America. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 730 Podcast, and I'm your host, Wally White. The reason we call this the 730 Podcast is because in the 90s song, Ebonics, the late, great Big L rap. If you 730, that means you crazy. Some might call me 730. I was recently hospitalized and diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and I'm trying to make sense of an issue both for myself and my audience that's too often misunderstood. I'm not a mental health expert, but I'm here to engage mental health professionals, athletes, artists, and other cultural influencers in conversations that explore how trauma and mental illness intersect with black culture. For this particular episode, I was lucky to have Dr. Ken P. Rosenberg join me on 730. He's a psychiatrist, author, and filmmaker. His most recent book and film aims to get at the core of America's mental health crisis. His experiences dealing with mental illness within his own family had a huge influence on his desire to write this book and direct this film. His commitment to not only exposing people to the severity of this mental health crisis in our country, but also educating people on ways in which they could address mental illness within their own lives, proved to me that he's not a mental health advocate as much as he's a mental health activist. I was able to meet Ken's partner at a film screening back in the fall, and she immediately informed me that Ken had written this book titled Bedlam, and that I really should look into it considering I was doing work in the space of mental health. And so sure enough, the next day I took a short walk over to Strand after work, uh, which is a local bookstore here in New York City. And I picked up his book and once I started reading it, I couldn't put it down. And the more I read it, the more I realized the complexity of this mental health crisis in our country. And so Ken and I were finally able to connect and here it is. So you've written this book, Bedlam, yeah, an intimate journey into America's mental health crisis. Can you tell me a little bit about how this book came into being? Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. So I am also making a film called Bedlam, uh, and that's going to be on PBS in April, uh, April 13th to be exact, on the Independent Lens series. And... As I was making the film, I thought, you know, there's so much I want to say. And as a filmmaker, I'm a documentary filmmaker as well as a psychiatrist. As a filmmaker, you know, you really never get to say everything you want to say. If if so, your film is a mess. And especially the films I like are cinema verite, which means that, you know, you just let people tell their own story. And you don't want to kind of insert yourself. And at some point I decide, no, I really need to insert myself in the story and in the film. But... In the book, I thought, you know, there's so much I need to say. And also, I need to help give people hope and give people a prescription for what they should do, what they should do, A, to change social policy, 
and B, what, what you should do if you have a loved one who has a serious mental illness. So I thought that, you know, you can't really do that in a film. Film's not didactic. It's not prescriptive. It's narrative-based. Uh, but, you know, the, the book really gave me the opportunity to do it, and Penguin Random House gave me the, the platform to do it. So um, uh, I was thrilled to do it and wrote it pretty quickly. I mean, it was written within uh, six months to a year um, because I kind of knew exactly what I wanted to say. Had you been sitting on this idea of writing the book for a while, or did the film help you write the book? Well, so, I mean, I think they were, were. This is my my third book. I have a textbook on behavioral addictions, on addictions to uh, gambling, sex, compulsive sex, uh, eating, food, that sort of thing. I'm an addiction psychiatrist, and I have another book on called Infidelity: Why Men and Women Cheat that goes into sort of you know theories, social and biological theories about why people cheat. So I've written books, so I like to write books. It's a good way to express myself. It's a fun thing to do. Um, so it kind of was natural, you know, thing for me to do. And then when I was doing the film, I thought, just, God, I have so much to say, so much to communicate, and so much I just can't put in a film. The book became the perfect venue. So you have this book. Um, as you said, you've written two other books or three other books. But this one's different. What what makes this book different? Mm, well, it's very personal, right? I mean, you know, infidelity is not, thank God, a personal story. Behavioral addictions is not a personal story. But this is a very personal story. It's about my sister who lived and died from serious schizophrenia. So, uh, I mean, this is very, very personal. And, you know, as I write about in the book in detail and, and speak about it in the film as well, you know, it wasn't until I was about, I'm 63 years old now. It wasn't until about, I was about 40 that I even told people about it. Um, you know, we were talking about my partner, Lynn, who introduced us. And uh, Lynn and I had been going out for like two years until I kind of told her a little bit of details about my sister. And it wasn't really until about two years in our relationship that I finally told her kind of really what kind of mess my dear beloved sister Meryl's Merle, Merle, right? yeah, Merle. life was. So it it wasn't something – in some ways it was easier to write it because it was super hard to talk about. Even like now it's super hard to talk about, let alone, you know, before I've been on like, you know, lots of TV shows and radio shows talking about some kind of a little bit immune, if you will, to talking about. It. But but uh, so, the, so the book um, was so different because it, it gave me a, an opportunity to write about something – that I really hadn't even shared with my dearest friends. How did having a close relative like your sister Meryl influence your career trajectory? Or oh my did it- God, it, it, it determined my career tra- trajectory. You know, I uh, wasn't sure what I would do. I, th- I, I like medicine. I thought I'd be a, a doctor. But when I was 14, Meryl was 20. She was involuntarily hospitalized against her will. She uh, became psychotic. She was, you know, a person who had anxiety and depression and had issues, social issues in particular, but never really displayed psychosis. But now kind of teenage angst devolved into adult psychosis, hearing voices, seeing things, you know, thinking all kinds of strange thoughts, uh, you know, being Bipolar, you know, you know what that means. You know, just your thoughts racing, going fast, fast, fast. And um, I, I just couldn't. I was, you know, just bereft and 
lost, and then we went to the psychiatrist's office at the hospital, where ultimately my parents took her out because they were so in denial and ashamed of her illness. But in the psychiatrist's office, I was like, wow, now I get it. She has a, a mental illness. And this guy, who's a, who's a guy, a psychiatrist, he understands it. And he is setting forth a path for us to get better. You know, medication, psychotherapy, so, psychosocial interventions, none of which they listen to, unfortunately. But I thought, I want to be that guy. I want to be able to help my sister. I want to be able to help families like my family. You said your sister struggled with schizophrenia. Can you? Ex- I have an, an idea because I've read part of your book. But ultimately, right. what what happens with your sister? I mean, what happens in the course of her life? Or yeah, what, or yeah, what yeah. were the symptoms? In, I'm not sure what your in the course is. of her life. How did the schizophrenia? Uh, uh, how did it manifest? Yeah, yeah. Great question. So you know, initially she was floridly psychotic. She was you know, just really lost in a sense of non-reality. As time went on, you know, she would be out of those episodes, and she wasn't always lost in non-reality. And she did occasionally take medicine, which helped her enormously. Um, but the mo- the saddest thing that happened is when I was beginning college, being a pre-med, and I was 17 when I started college, uh, and Meryl, you know, was in her early 20s, I came home one day, and no one was home. I was like, where the hell is everyone? It's like late at night, and didn't know what was going on. I had lived at home. I went to college uh, at at a local university. And I came home, and um, I got a call that my sister was in the hospital. And then my parents were in the hospital. And then my sister had fallen out out of her bedroom window which is kind of three flights above a horrible concrete pavement. And, uh, you know, that was, in, in fact, because the delusions, hallucinations, were leading her to jump out the window. Now, unfortunately, my parents concocted a story, because they were so in denial of this, that, God forbid someone should know about this, con- concocted a story that they, would, that they told everyone that a would-be rapist entered the house, and to save herself, my sister Meryl went out the window. There was no evidence of anyone breaking in. There was no evidence of that at all. There was a plethora of evidence that she was a psychotic, untreated person who now was six years further into her, her illness and deteriorating. And as a consequence of that fall onto the concrete driveway, uh, she broke nearly every bone in her body. Now, because of the brilliant surgeons at University of Pennsylvania Hospital, she uh, did re- get restored. I mean, a lot of her physical ability was restored, but her mental illness was never to be discussed. You know, it's, it, she wouldn't talk about it. I tried to find, I was a psychology major at, at college. I tried to get psychiatrists to see her. I even got a psychiatrist to come to the house, and she wouldn't have any of it. Um, and I think that was the saddest thing that happened. And then, of course, you know, as life went on, she never made a new friend. She never held a job. She really had what's called the negative symptoms of schizophrenia. So the positive symptoms are the hallucinations, the delusions. Um, The negative symptoms are the apathy and the withdrawal and the kind of, you know, taking yourself out of of life. Right. And, um, you know, so her life became really kind of sad and lonely. 
And ultimately, when my parents passed away and my older sister, unfortunately, also passed away, I was left to take care of her. And she wouldn't let me do anything. I hired social workers. I hired doctors. I found places for her to live because she had been living in the, in the home where we grew up. But again, she would have none of it. And finally, when she stopped answering the phone for, for two weeks, I called the police. And at that point, unfortunately, she was dead. They found her dead in her in my parents' bed. So um, how that affect her life? As you know, unfortunately, uh, this is not an uncommon story for people with serious mental illness in America today. So it's a personal story, of course, for us, right? But it's a very, it's a, it's a widespread tragedy. Uh, 50% of people who need help don't get, get it. it. And, you know, we talk about criminal justice, right? I, the, the, the Now, if you're seriously mentally ill, you're about 10 times more likely to be in a jail or a prison than you are to be in a hospital. hospital. And you're more likely to be on the street than in a hospital. Homeless. Homeless, all that stuff. So my sister's tragedy is, you know, an American tragedy. And my family's shame is America's great secret. I've been telling people about your book, and this is not just a joke. I've been really telling people about your book because I've read a bunch of different mental health books since I've gotten out of the hospital. And your book, I, I just felt was, it had something for everyone in it. Right. Thank you. It had something for everyone in it, and it's yeah. such a big reason why I wanted to get you on the podcast. So in having something for everyone, mm -hmm. um, and we won't be able to get to talk about all of it, but the stuff in regards to Me Too medicines and the mm -hmm. role of pharmaceutical companies and scientists and things like that, I think people think about SMIs and they're like, well, people need to take medication. SMI, serious mental illness. Serious yeah. mental illness. But can you explain the complexity of this issue in regards to medicine? Because it's not so simple yeah. as people just taking medicine. There's a long history behind no, it. No, no, no. So the medicines are life-saving. But the treatments, you know, uh, before there were medicines, there were really no good treatments. Uh, there is electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, which actually is a very good treatment, but was done brutally in the 20s and 30s when it was first developed. Uh, but aside from ECT, you know, we had nothing. In fact, you know, the frontal lobotomy, right? The, the worst disaster ever ruined people's lives. Rose, uh, Rosemary Kennedy had it done, a sister of JFK, and she was institutionalized for the rest of her life. Well, that treatment won the 1949 Nobel Prize. So what does that tell you? That tells you how desperate we were, how, you know, this treatment that was ruining people's lives, you know, we had basically take an ice pick, slam it through the eye socket, chisel away at the brain, blindly chisel away at the brain, take off pieces of the frontal lobes, lobes make people kind of, you know, infantilize them uh, by taking away their brain and their reasoning structure. And we gave that the Nobel Prize. So we had nothing. <laughs> and then for through sheer serendipity in 1949, the thing was developed. 1950, the antipsychotics were developed. And those are great drugs. Those are life-saving drugs. I took a man today in my practice, in my psychiatric practice, to the hospital. And I hope and expect that he will be put on lithium. So we have these great drugs. But what did I just say? I said, we're now 2000, nearly 2020. And I'm hoping that my patient today is going to be put on a drug from 1949. 
that's really unacceptable. And the reason that's happening is because A, the brain is very complicated. But B, because you know, we haven't had the advocacy. We haven't had people like you and me stand up and say, this is me, this is my family, we need to change this. So we haven't had the advances we have in cancer. If, God forbid, you have cancer and you go to Sloan Kettering, you're not going to get, in all likelihood, a 1949 drug protocol, right? right. You're going to get something like it's two years old. Um, if you have HIV, you're going to get antiviral uh, regimens that was developed in the past decade. So we don't have that for serious mental illness. And uh, the Me Too drugs is a reference to the fact that what pharmaceutical companies have done is they've created these really good drugs. And I would say it's no fault of theirs. It's our fault as a society. But what they've done is they've made the same drugs over and over and over. And they tweak them. They make them a little bit better. They take away this side effect. They add that side effect. You know, they're kind of like the same drug. So what we have today are antipsychotics that are not a whole lot more effective than the antipsychotics we had in 1950, okay? 70 years later, we haven't made them more effective. But the drug companies have made lots of money because they're creating new drugs to keep them on patent. I don't blame the drug companies. They're responsible to their stakeholders. But who the hell are we responsible to, right? We have to be responsible to our citizens, our sickest citizens, right. our family members and ourselves. So you're saying it's not the pharmaceutical companies. They're not at fault. Um, no, because, you know, part of the problem, they, they would if they saw there was a great molecule and we had a lot of money in research and we said there's this great you know new molecule that you should test, and you can make a billion dollars or three billion dollars selling it, they would jump on it. Right. You know, so I don't blame them for, as I say, for being responsible to their stakeholders and to trying to make money. I mean, that we're, we're you know, we're in a capitalist system, whether that's good or bad, that's what we bought. But so I don't blame the pharmaceutical companies, really. I don't think it's their responsibility. I think it's our responsibility to say that just ain't enough. And that the research, can't come from from big pharma it has to come from universities and therefore we have to make it a priority so you look at let's talk about research for a second cancer cardiac disease one to six billion dollars of the nih money goes to cancer or uh, cardiovascular disease smi serious mental illness which is far more prevalent the cost burden a serious mental illness is greater than cancer and cardiovascular disease combined. It's a fraction of that. It's $450 million. How do we explain that? It's not a priority. I mean, first of all, you can explain it because it's hard to find the cure. It's hard to do the research. It's hard to do the medicine. But it's not a priority. People are not talking up. You know, when's the last time you went to Central Park and saw a marathon for serious mental illness? When's the last time you saw a milk carton or a ribbon for serious mental illness? We should we should organize one. Yeah, we should. Let's do it. All right. I, I'd totally be on board <laughs> for that. Seriously, 100%. When's the last time we had a march? I mean, you know, in, in our film and in my book, we talk about Patrice Cullors, co-founder of Black Lives Matter, which really has to do with people with, with serious mental illness. It's based on our brother, Monty, who we chronicle Monty's life in the film and in the book. Yeah. But Monty had a serious mental illness. And 
especially if you're a person of color and you have a serious mental illness, your treatment is really bad and you're going to be, you know, treated in a jail, in a prison. You're going to be, you know, shot <laughs> by the cops. You know, the cops are going to be called to help you and they're going to see you and you're not going to get good treatment. So that's where Black Lives Matter kind of comes from. Um, it certainly came from Ferguson and all the sort of atrocities there. But it, but Patrice has really founded it uh, from from her side for people with serious mental illness. Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know. Right. And then you read your book and you're like, like I didn't know that until I read your book. And I was yeah. like, holy shit. <laughs> uh, a lot of our jails and prisons are the places where the most mental illness is found, right? Oh, it's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. One in four. And if you, in fact, if you look at the people who were in, in institutions of care in the 1950s and you look at the population that's in the prison, you see they just moved. We didn't deinstitutionalize. Deinstitutionalization, of course, is the movement from the asylums and kind of breaking down the asylums, tearing down the asylums, saying they were bad. They were bad. We didn't deinstitutionalize those folks. We transinstitutionalized those folks. We took them from asylums, which are horrible. And put them in places that are worse: jails, prisons, streets. We're talking about the like criminal justice system, mental health. In your book, you sort of go in at length about your, your experiences going into these places, seeing mm. some of the way in which the prisons and things like that are dealing with with peoples of these populations. What do you find in terms of how treatment looks within? side of prison uh, as opposed to outside and what that yeah. what that looks like it's an interesting question i mean treatment is not great in jail in prison um but at least people get treatment you know i've often had family members and you know, and, uh, and and i patrice would kind of back me up on this being a family member herself who um dread when their relatives are taken to jail in custody right but at least they know they're safe. At least they know they're not going to be on the street psychotic. Um, and a lot of family members hope that their family, uh, that their loved one with a mental illness, will end up in a jail or prison. It's a crazy concept, right? It's a crazy concept. Yeah, they hope that will happen because, you know, for for two reasons. One is they'll be safe. They'll get some treatment. They'll get some medicine, and they'll be okay until they get released. And then there is no care. For, for, as you say, a myriad of reasons, not the least of which is sometimes people with serious mental illness, not to blame them, but have something called anosognosia, which means they don't know that they're sick. You, so you went you went to some of these jails and prisons? Like oh, you yeah, went, yeah, yeah. You went to L.A. County Jail? I was in L.A. County Jail. I've, I've been hanging out at Rikers. And then Cook yeah. County Jail? Never been at Cook County. Cook County, yeah, okay. Yeah. But, but that, those are the three biggest. Big ones. Big ones, right? Those are the three biggest jails in America, which are also the three largest mental institutions in America. That's where care is most delivered, in those three jails. Yeah, and so... Not in three hospitals, not in Bellevue, you know, New York Presbyterian, Mount whatever. Sinai. Mount Sinai, right. Cook County, Rikers, and L.A. County. Twin Towers, it's called. What did you find when you were in L.A. County versus Rikers? Like, what are these environments look like? You know, I, I it's a great question. I don't think I am an expert enough to answer that because I think I saw it. I was there. I talked to people. But I, you know, I don't really feel that I could 
honestly answer that, like the, what, the, what are the differences. But I think that, as I say, you know, people get treatment there, but they don't get much. You know, they, they often get enough to keep them alive. As you well know, you know, in jails and prisons, um, people could get pretty good things. They could get pretty good education. They could get pretty good health care. But it's not, you know, you won't say, uh, you know, I'm cut. I have a, I have a broken leg. I think I'm going to go to Rikers Island, right? But with mental illness, you, a family member says, my, my loved one is sick. I think we should try to get him to Rikers Island. How messed up is that? It's twisted. And I know that one of the things you talk about in the book, which I think is really interesting and a lot of people don't talk about, is the people that are dealing with these people with serious mental illness are oftentimes people that are not qualified to do these things. Oh, yeah. the, the I mean, people who run jails and prisons did not do this job, take this job to treat people with serious mental illness. They're not social workers. They're not psychiatrists. It's not what interests them. Uh, people don't go into police work to take care of people with serious mental illness, but up to 20% of police time is spent with people with serious, serious mental illness. So they have to get trained. But that's, no, did you ever meet someone who said, I want to become a police officer because uh, I want to get a PhD in psychology? No, that's not what they're interested in. Um, they're interested in law enforcement. Um, but that those are the folks that end up taking care of our loved ones with serious mental well, illness. Yeah, when they're inside. When they're outside. I mean, if you know, if you have a problem with a brother or sister or mother, uh, you know, and you, and and they someone won't go to the hospital. What do you do? You call, call the police. police. I called the police to, to help my sister, and unfortunately, they found her dead. How do we? Um, so you talk a little bit about pharmaceuticals, and you kind of break that down. But your book really is identifying this as a crisis, and people oh, yeah. oftentimes talk about it as a crisis. How do you explain the crisis? How like how did we get here? How do we get to this moment where America right. is in this crisis? Oh, that's a great question. I think that um, neglect, stigma, we're ashamed of it. We don't talk about it. We cower in the corners. We hide from it. Um, we've delegated this uh, to you know the highest bidder, the jails, the prisons. We have not you know really focused on this as a culture. And I think it is fair to say it is among the greatest social crises of our time. But people are like, really? Come on. You know, I mean, there are other crises, right, that we live with every day. But this is one that we're not aware of that we live with every day, uh, which in some ways makes it even worse. But to answer your question, how do we get here? I mean, it's, I, I think there's, a, there's many fundamental problems that have gotten us here. One is the complexity of the illness, that it's not just one thing. Secondly, is the stigma and shame. And thirdly, it's, you know, we just don't know what to do. So we go from one bad solution to another bad solution. We take a brick-and-mortar approach to solving this crisis, right? We build asylums. Okay, we tear down asylums. We build jails. And now we're actually we're tearing down the jails. We're not building any more jails for the mentally ill. That was the plan up till a few years ago, but now everyone's like, that it makes no sense. But, you know, what I argue for in the book is we don't need just a brick-and-mortar solution. Yes, we need, you know, better facilities, and actually we need hospitals. We have 2 to 3% of the psychiatric beds uh, per capita now that we had in 1950. 
But mental illness didn't go away, right? So we do need more buildings. We do need more beds. We do need more facilities. But what I argue for most passionately is we need more research, and we need better care, um, and we need better biological research because it is my opinion, at least, that you know these illnesses have a large biological component. And uh, I'm a psychotherapist. I believe in psychotherapy. Uh, but for someone who's psychotic, you can't talk them out of their psychosis. You have to kind of give them medication, and I would argue the right medication. Um, so I think we need to invest in research as well as in what I call, you know, brick-and-mortar solutions. Yeah, it's interesting that you say um, a lot of these SMIs c- could be biologically related. And that's a lot of the research suggests that because, for me, both my parents had serious addiction issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad, My dad died from a crack overdose. I'm so sorry. Um, and my mom had struggled with crack addiction throughout my entire life, Mm. as far back as I remember. And she passed two years ago. But, um, and so that was real for me. The other thing was my dad fought in Vietnam. So he came back from the war and had all types of crazy PTSD. Mm -hmm. So... I would say that my education surrounding mental illness was a little bit more advanced than my counterparts in a lot of ways or my peers. And I didn't even know it Mm -hmm. at the time. And when now I look back and, you know, I got this bipolar diagnosis, I can just say, oh, it makes sense why I'm so fucked up. No, but, you know, it's like Uh I it's not fucked up. It's like part of who I am and, and part of my experience both maybe socially and environmentally, like all these things have played a part biologically. And so I can make sense of it a little bit more. You know, you also mentioned something that's really super important to talk about when we talk about serious mental illness, and it's completely underestimated, which is the role of substance abuse. You know, um, there are a lot of homeless people out there who have serious mental illness, but about 80% of the homeless population has a substance abuse problem. And it is my opinion, and I think others share it, that, you know, part of why we're seeing so much serious mental illness is because of substance abuse. That substance abuse, even, dare I say, it might be unpopular uh, to say, but even, you know, excessive weed use will open a window, it's my opinion, on serious mental illness that might otherwise be closed. So I think when I say biological, I, I mean that something snaps in the brain, but how it snaps is not necessarily biological. It could be Vietnam. It could be poverty. It could be the repeated trauma of being in jail. It could be many things. Um, you know, it could be many, many bad things that happen to you. But ultimately, what that does is it ch- changes your brain chemistry. And it's when that kind of happens in a critical way that people become seriously mentally ill, which again, to just to recap, means suicidal depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, serious, serious, you know, personality disorders, things that render you dysfunctional. And it's not necessarily that it's a genetic thing because we know from the schizophrenia data that if you have an identical twin with schizophrenia, same DNA composition as you, what do you think your chance of getting schizophrenia is? A lot higher. 50% though, which means you have a 50% chance of not getting it. So whatever creates a person having schizophrenia is not just biology. 
it will culminate in a change in the brain that's biological. But to get there, it could be trauma, it could be a toxin, it could be you know, a myriad of things. And it could be substance abuse. I think that's completely underestimated. You know, you can't get well if you're still using substances, in my personal opinion. I think schizophrenia is just not understood. Mm-hmm. I, you're, you're kind of alluding to it in terms of professionally speaking, research speaking. Right. But I think for the common person, it is something that is that people can't wrap their head around. I right. know for me, I can't wrap my head around it. Right. Can you explain what this SMI is, what it yeah. does? And you kind of talk about it in regard to your sister, but yeah. what might be some of the telltale signs that someone may have schizophrenia or? So the so there's two kinds of psycho- psychotic illnesses that are common, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And what distinguishes them so you can understand it because you've had one of those illnesses, is that bipolar disorder, you know, you're okay in between episodes. Schizophrenia, you can be kind of okay, but you're never kind of just completely, you know, okay. The other thing that distinguishes it um, is that bipolar is a mood disorder. So the fundament, so there's a thought disorder, meaning, you know, that's what we see in schizophrenia, meaning your thinking's wrong. You're kind of, you're lost in this unreality. You're hearing voices. You might see things. But the fundamental problem in bipolar is that your mood is up and down. You're either depressed or you're manic in which, you know, you're racing and you're going kind of like an engine at, you know, 200 miles an hour, except the engine is just parked. The car is parked, but you're going at 200 miles an hour. That's mania. In schizophrenia, you have mainly a thought disorder, not a mood disorder. So, for instance, what you experience as a bipolar person is um, a lot of you know, mood changes. And you might have psychosis mixed into that, but if you took out the mood and just put the psychosis and then ramped up the psychosis, that's, that's schizophrenia. So the the two illnesses are very much related in a lot of ways. And they might be the you know, schizophrenia and bipolar might be the same illness or they might be variants of the same illness, or each illness might be a hundred other illnesses. That's why we need research. Right. So you're talking about research, you're talking about universities. What do you think or what role do these institutions when I say institutions, I'm like Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Stanford, Cornell, where I am. Cornell. Yeah. What role do they play in it? What can they do? Like, how do we sort of make sense of this? Well, I think like that, like all other research, they need money. They need funding. You know, we we talked about uh, you know serious mental illness. Four hundred and fifty-two million dollars of the NIH money is for serious mental illness. Well, that seems like a lot, but cancer, cardiac, cardiovascular disease, one to six billion dollars. So I think that we need to give these folks money, and we need to give them license, and we need to give them direction. Uh, and I think the universities can do much, will do much more. You know, I mean, researchers want to do their work. They want to get paid. Uh, postdocs want jobs. Uh, you know, so there's there's an abundance of talent out there, but we really need to fund it. One of the things I loved about your book is you have this, like, very practical approach or mm-hmm. things that people can do. People oftentimes right. – like, I think my parents – because um, I was adopted. Mm-hmm. I think my parents were like, he has bipolar. We don't know what the fuck to do with him half the right, time. Right, 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 right. And maybe a couple of my friends feel that way too. But <laughs> the the point I'm making is that people don't have 
the resources. So as you're talking about, there needs to be more research. I think there's like there also needs to be more education. Oh, you can and be you're... More, more correct. Well, you need to, and there needs to be more resources because, you know, I mean, let's just take sort of basic facts. You end up in an emergency room. You have to wait hours to days to get a bed. You know, I, I brought a patient to an emergency room today. You know, at, at uh, Cornell. And uh, the doctor who runs the emergency room, brilliant doctor, dear friend of mine, uh, I said, you know, can you, can we get the this guy a bed in our hospital? And she almost laughed at me. She was like, we have no beds. You know, there's no place to put people. We'll have to send him out to, to the next place that becomes available. And that's going to be God knows where. It depends on his insurance. And, and if he doesn't have good insurance, it's going to take a longer time. You know, in uh, USC, uh, which is a great hospital, and, and L.A. County is really trying to do a great job. But how many beds do you think there are for children, for adolescents, uh, you know, who have a psychiatric need? At USC? No, in L.A. County. In L.A. County? Uninsured kids. How many beds do you think there are? I'm going to say a 1,000. Yeah. Well, you're off by like 990. There are, there are like 10 beds or as when we were when we were doing this uh, in 2014, they've increased it to maybe 30 beds. But there are like 10 beds for uninsured kids. Are in you all kidding me? No, I'm not kidding you. That's and, twisted. You know, it is twisted. And and I know the folks who now are you know in in power in county, and they're really trying to change that. But you know, again, we have not made this a priority. The hospital that I trained at, uh, Payne Whitney. Had ten, you know, had lots of floors for psychiatric beds. Uh, I think there are ten floors to the entire place. I don't quite recall, but now that's been reduced to one ward in the hospital, because, you know, it just didn't pay. They couldn't sustain it. The hospital could not keep having psychiatry lose money. Right. And who do you blame? You know, do you blame the doctors? Do you blame the pharmaceutical companies? No, you blame us for not saying we need more. For not, you know, having the ribbons and the ice bucket challenges and all the things we see for cancer and HIV. If you had to break down like three really important things oh, that people question. can do to help their relatives or yeah. friends who have mental illness, what are those three things? Like, if you had had to, run well, the first them? thing is to accept they have a mental illness. That and you know to not sort of run away from it or say it must be something else. And to realize, you know, they have an illness and uh, it desperately needs treatment. And the treatments, while imperfect, which is maybe the second thing, can be life-saving. So, you know, all the medicines have side effects and some of those side effects are really horrible. But I would say for myself, for my loved one, it's much better to live with those side effects than to live with the untreated illness. Um, so I think the first thing is to kind of accept it and talk about it. And become an expert on it. The second thing would be to you know really accept treatment and be open minded. You know you might not like what someone says or the psychiatrist says or the social worker says, but you should at least kind of keep an open mind and you know not close yourself off. And um, you know I think that beyond that, you really need to find support for this in the community. You can't keep it a secret. That doesn't help. You need to tell your friends. And the people who, who could really offer a lot of support is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. They have meetings in every city. They have many chapters throughout the country. They have education. They have training. They have support. And at the end of the day, you may still, as I did, 
suffer. You may watch your loved one or even yourself deteriorate because you have an illness that's really bad. And that's a terrible thing to say, but that might be the reality. But at least if you do these things, you won't suffer in ignorance and you won't suffer alone. And probably the worst thing that we can experience is feeling all alone with anything. Yeah, the NAMI stuff was, you know, really instrumental for me when I got out of the hospital. I mm -hmm. went to a lot of What was that like for you? Um, it's interesting. That's a really great question. Uh, I think it helped me really identify and say, well, this is a real thing and this is mm -hmm. something I have and yeah. this is something I'm going to deal with. Uh, and then it made me also think about the spectrum like you were talking about earlier, there's a spectrum of SMIs. My bipolar may look very different than your bipolar. Right. You know, how I might respond to a certain medication may be very different than... Right. Like someone, I remember in one of the meetings, someone had talked about taking Seroquel and how Seroquel was working for them. And I was like, I fucking hate that drug. <laughs> like, never going to take that thing again. Right, right, right. And so... Yeah, a lot of people swear by it. A lot of people hate it. I just can't do it. I yeah, yeah. it made me when I was in the hospital. It made me hallucinate. They like, really? yeah. They get but you know, a lot of those things are dose dependent, um, which is another reason to you know get good treatment because um, you know a, a lower dose might be you might know be better. Good. I'm not saying you should try Seroquel again. But I'm just saying that you know uh, when you when you treat someone, you really have to start with the lowest dose because right. if you go too high, you'll make them really sick. And they'll hate the medicine and hate you. So it's really good. That's actually yeah. good and important that you're saying that, though, because I'm going to be honest with you. I never thought in my lifetime I'd be taking antipsychotics and an antidepressant. I just thought that wasn't for me. Mm. And I think a big reason why I thought that wasn't for me is because people, one, it's stigmatized. So two, it's uh, there is a history of malpractice and maltreatment when it comes to people that look like me, people that are people of color, people that yeah. are black. And so there's like a lack of trust there. Yeah, for good reason. Yeah, for, with good reason. And so I, I oftentimes was just, no, that's not what I'm going to do. And I even think now I'm still skeptical. I'm on, I'm on Wellbutrin and Lamictal. And I'm still skeptical. Like how much is this actually helping me right now? And well, you're doing this podcast, so something's working. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. That's a good point. Uh, but like sometimes I'm, I question like how much of this is actually placebo and how much of it is this medication is being effective. I like to think the medication's being effective. Right. I like to, like you said, I like to try to keep a, a an open, open mind. mind. It's really important to keep that open mind. You um, know? And to find someone, like we talk about that in the book, find someone you could trust. Right. Because, you know... Left to our own, own devices, if it's a problem, we're often the last people to know. What do you say to the person, for example, in our country, white people's experience or people that aren't people of color, their experience in relation to, say, for example, dealing with people within your profession yeah. versus people of color yeah. is very vastly different. Oh, my God. There's so much to talk about there. First of all, to start with the fact that when, you know, if if you're you know, a white person, especially an upper middle class white person, you know, we need help. We call the police. You're a person of color. We need help. What? 
We're not calling the, the police. We're not calling the police. That ain't going to help right. us. So I think that and 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 police are the first responders for people with serious mental illness. So let's just start right there. Secondly, in in medicine as in everywhere else, there's structural racism, right? So if you have the same person with the same symptoms who is a person of color and a, a Caucasian person, person of color tends to get a worse diagnosis and a worse prognosis, meaning you know how it's all going to go, what the outcome is going to be. The person of color is more likely to be sent to a jail than a hospital. So, yeah, there's a lot of distrust for good reason. And there's not, unfortunately, a whole lot of psychiatrists of color, like 5% maybe or less of the psychologists and psychiatrists are people of color. So, um, yeah, it is super hard. It's super hard. And that's why I think, you know, um, support, as we talked about, NAMI, you know, just and being able to talk about these things. And honestly, you know, you need to talk to them with everyone, including your psychiatrist. And if your psychiatrist is different, you need to say, hey, you probably don't get it. And they need to be able to say, yeah, you're probably right. Right. You know? So people that say we want to do this homeopathic thing, but we don't want to take these meds. What's your response to that? You have a patient walking off office. They say, right. you know, I have bipolar. I'm not taking lithium. Uh, I'm going to try these other types of therapies. Yeah, I mean, I say I'll support you in it. We could we could kind of work on it, you know. But um, it's just not what I do. It's me like coming here and saying, you know, we're, you you say we do a podcast, and I'm saying no, I want to make a TV. Uh, you know, movie of the week or something, you know, right. it's not what you do. I don't know how to give, you know, homeopathic medicines. There are people who do that and I could support you in doing it and I could help you, but I could, and, and I could and should not sit in judgment of you because, you know, you have to find your way, but I will try to gently encourage you to see it my way, you know, and sometimes that takes, you know, um, some trouble happening, trouble with the police or you know, trouble with school or trouble with a loved one. And then you might be open. Um, but I kind of try, as a, as a psychiatrist, I try to set the, the framework for, you know, you're able to, you're, you're coming back to me without feeling defeated or humiliated. Right. You know, I never want to say like, I told you so or something like that. So I think you have to meet people where they are. And, you know, also there's a lot of things you could do besides taking medicine, in fact, I think there's a lot of things you should do before you take medicine. You should eat well. You should sleep well. You should have friends. You should, you know, have social engagements. You should have meaningful activities. Um, I'm a big fan of meditation, and I I say nearly all my patients, how can you take medication if you're going to eat terribly and not meditate and not exercise? Because we know that meditation and exercise is going to make you feel better, and there's no side effects. So why not do that? What is your hopes with the film? I'm hoping it will really create a movement and create social change. That's really what I want. And I think that's long overdue. Um, And I think, you know, nationally we need to have a conversation. And, you know, things we're talking about are not usually spoken about. Your bipolar disorder is not something that people, you know, talk about. Um, The need to change our social policy in this country is not talked about. Right. Uh, so um, the need to have funding for research isn't talked about. So I'm really hoping that people will look at this. You know, we we, we premiered this film at Sundance, the Sundance Film Festival. 
And the headlines were just kind of, you know, that we were trying to outrage people. In a very positive way, the headlines were that. And I think that's absolutely correct. We're really trying to promote outrage because this not, should not be the way it is in America. All right, before we wrap up this episode, uh, I first want to thank Ken for taking the time out to join me on 730. His knowledge of the mental health crisis in our country is vast, and I was so lucky to have him on the podcast. So thank you, Ken. Also, I highly recommend that you pick up his book, Bedlam, An Intimate Journey into America's Mental Health Crisis. The book was phenomenal. I learned so much, like so, so, so much. And as I told Ken, I not only found the book to be really accessible, but I also found it to be the most comprehensive. It really lays the foundation for why this mental health crisis in our country exists. And he comes up with very clear cut suggestions in terms of how people can address mental illness within their own lives, whether that is they deal with mental illness directly themselves or they have a friend or relative that deals with mental illness so I, I really highly recommend picking up his book also Ken's film which is under the same title Bedlam will air tonight at 10 p.m. on PBS I'm gonna be sure to tune in tonight and during this time of quarantine and social isolation I feel like we all have tons of time to tune into a lot of things right now. And lastly, before we wrap up, I just want to send my best to everyone. I hope you all are safe and, and healthy during this COVID crisis. It's a crazy, crazy time. And I, I just want to encourage everyone to make sure that they're taking time out to take care of yourself, both mentally and physically. So I'm sending you all good vibrations and lots of positive energy and love and I'll catch you guys on the next episode. Peace.